developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast where we usually look at how words and language change over time. In today's episode, however, we're doing a deep dive into a topic that a handful of listeners have asked me about over the years, which is rhetoric. To help us get into this topic, I'm joined by Guy Doza, a professional speechwriter and author of the new book, How to Apologize for Killing a Cat, Rhetoric and the Art of Persuasion. Let's get right into it. Guy, welcome to Words for Granted. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, lovely to be here. So we are going to be mostly talking about uh, rhetoric, or entirely, I shouldn't say mostly, entirely talking about rhetoric. So before we jump in, I guess I'll just sort of set the stage here with my own sort of biases. And and I think these are the biases of, of probably most people. And that's that rhetoric has a bad reputation. There's sort of this notion that it's a uh, like a shallow linguistic tool, something used for uh, swindling uh, or deception or consumerism. And I think those applications are certainly uh, true. They exist, um, but that's not the full picture. Having read your book, my sense is that re- rhetoric is basically omnipresent. It's basically everywhere all the time, uh, but below the surface. So what I'd like you to do is to first start us off with a definition of what rhetoric is and then speak to this idea of th- this popular misconception that I'm talking about. Okay, yeah, certainly. So I would say that the definition of rhetoric would be the study of persuasion. It is looking at what makes language persuasive. So any sort of persuasive argument will have some sort of mechanical construction behind it. Someone has specifically chosen words, sentences, structures, patterns of repetition in order to make that message persuasive. So that pursuit of persuasiveness is the art of rhetoric. And on to your point that you mentioned about it having a bad reputation, you're absolutely right. It does have a bad reputation. For example, in the media today, the only time you'll really hear the word rhetoric used is in a derogatory sense. So the newspaper will be reporting on someone they don't like, and they'll say they're using their rhetoric. So it's used a lot to talk about North Korea and Vladimir Putin. But when people are talking about speakers they like, so for example, you know, when Obama was president, and even now when he says something eloquent, people never use the word rhetoric. But of course, Obama is using rhetoric and he uses it a lot and all of the time. And this reputation that rhetoric has of being bad has existed for hundreds of years. An example that I like to look at is actually from Shakespeare's King Lear. There's a line where Cordelia, King Lear's daughter, says, if for I want that glib and oily art to speak and purpose not. So she's talking about the art of speaking in a way that's not authentic. And she's talking about rhetoric and she calls it a glib and oily art. And this was hundreds of years ago. And now today we pretty much have the same definition in a way, this sort of like negative view. 
But one of the things that I want to do and that my work is trying really hard to do is to prove to the world that rhetoric is not just bad. The analogy that I like to use quite a lot is that rhetoric is like fire. Fire can be incredibly destructive. I'm not lying. You know, I'm not going to pretend that it's not. It can be incredibly destructive, but it's also an incredibly valuable tool. We use fire to light up light our way in the darkness. We use fire to create fireworks and beautiful things to look at. And we also use fire, fire to run machinery and to heat things up. So it's incredibly valuable. And in the same way that fire can be dangerous, so can rhetoric. But arguably, rhetoric is probably more dangerous than fire. And fire, whilst it can be used for good and bad, can also be used irresponsibly. And I think the same is true of rhetoric. Sorry, I went on on a bit of a tangent there, but I hope that that no, no, that's, answers your question. That, that's, that's quite all right. I think what's interesting to me is this notion that um, rhetoric is just so ingrained into the way that we communicate and that we're like sort of, we hear it all the time and we use it all the time, but we don't know. And in some way, I, I think you were suggesting that we're all rhetoricians, but unknowingly, and that the difference between a rhetorician and a non-rhetorician is simply someone who knows what they're doing consciously, but, you know, all the time, we are basically making negotiations, arguing, uh, praising each other using, using rhetoric. Absolutely. A, a good analogy to compare it is to grammar. Everyone who speaks uses grammar, and you'll have lots of people who have never in their life studied grammar. They use grammatical rules that they've just picked up through learning how to speak, but they don't know what they're called and they're not aware they're using them. And I always say that, you know, when you study grammar, you can then communicate at a higher level. And the same is true of rhetoric. We're all using rhetorical techniques because it's so ingrained in our language and in our literary heritage and in everything around us. Anything that has words has rhetoric. It's almost impossible to open your mouth without using some form of rhetoric. But it's when people understand how it works and then use it effectively, that's when it starts to become more interesting. Sure. I mean, to even bring it down even even more to earth than like our literary heritage. I mean, you go to McDonald's, you order a cheeseburger. There's 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 rhetoric between you and the person serving you. There's rhetoric on the menu that's trying to get you to buy the thing. Like it is it's just really the tools of communication. Absolutely. But the question is, the person who wrote the menu for McDonald's, were they thinking, oh, I'm going to use a tricolon here and then a little bit of ethos? They, they, they probably weren't using the meta language. They probably weren't aware. They might not have studied it. So how do they know it works? Is because all of their lives, they've been grown up, they've grown up surrounded by messages that use these different rhetorical features. And that's how they become ingrained in our culture. Yes. And so in just a moment, I think we're going to dive into some of the specifics of these features. But um. Uh, just just another thought that popped into my mind before we you know start looking at these uh, <laughs> these complex uh, Greco-Roman classical terms that exist in rhetoric, like, like you said, pathos, ethos, uh, logos. We'll talk about all of those. But I, how can I say this? I, I'm I'm wondering if there's a cultural component to the effectiveness of rhetoric, and what I mean by that is like someone like Donald Trump, for example is an effective rhetorician because, you know, he <laughs> he riles up a crowd. He gets people to, you know, really believe in what he's saying, but but he's not necessarily eloquent. For all the things that Donald Trump is, I, even if you love the guy, I don't think that you would say that he is eloquent. And again, in my preconception of what I think rhetoric is, eloquence is a part of that. And I think if you were to like study the great speeches, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, uh, 
Queen Elizabeth, etc. There's there's an element of eloquence to that. So I guess what I'm getting at is like eh, effective rhetoric on TikTok is different than effective rhetoric, you know, in Congress, for example. And so I'm just wondering what 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 about the cultural context of the audience actually dictates the effectiveness of rhetorical techniques? You've touched on a lot of really important issues there, and I'd love to address them all. I see if I can remember, but the, what, what I say is like, I work as a speechwriter, and the most important thing for me is knowing who the audience that I'm writing for is. It's not even as much about the speaker, it's about the audience. The question is, who is the audience and what is the most effective way of persuading them? And the most effective way may not be the most eloquent way. And I think that's something that we sometimes forget. So use the example of Donald Trump. You know, if Donald Trump is able to stand up in front of an audience of potential voters and make a grunting sound. And from that one grunting sound, they all understand what he's trying to say and they decide they're going to vote for him. That I would say is very successful. Now, of course, it's not quite that simple, but one of the things that I look at in my book is the things that he say in his, said in his rallying speeches. And he'd go up to place and go, oh, I'm in Alabama, I love Alabama, it's great. And the audience would start chanting, USA, USA, USA. And I'm, I'm thinking, I was watching this thinking, he hasn't said anything. And then he goes to Maine and says, oh, I love Maine, it's so beautiful. And then the audience start chanting, USA, USA, USA. And it sounds very simple, very primitive, but this is something that the ancients called comprobatio, which is when you compliment your audience to win their favor. Now, yeah, maybe it's primitive, maybe it's not eloquent, but we can't deny that it worked. I remember when I was in the States when they were having the election between him and Hillary, I saw a billboard that said, want a job, vote Trump. Now, to many people, that won't make much sense. They're like, well, what's that connected? But to many, many voters who didn't have a job or were unhappy with the job that they have, seeing a billboard say, want a job, that instantly targets all of those negative emotions that you have, and it recognizes those emotions, and it gives them validity. And then there's an imperative afterwards, vote Trump, telling you what to do. So yes, it's incredibly basic in many ways, but a billboard like that, and, and that was all it said, want a job, vote Trump. A billboard like that can be incredibly powerful for a lot of voters. Now, one of the things that I think we have to remember, especially amongst fellow speechwriters, I tell people, we've all received a certain level of education and we tend to take things for granted. There was a study that was conducted. I can't remember the exact study, but they, they, they sent out a statement to see how many people understood it. And one third of people didn't understand the statement. And the statement was, do not consume this pill on an empty stomach. So it's the kind of thing that we really do take for granted. And in order to be a master communicator, at least from a speech perspective, we often say that you have to be a master of simplification, but an enemy of simplicity. And I think that takes us back to that idea of effectiveness versus eloquence. So yes, there very much is a cultural component in the same way that there's you know, socioeconomic components, there are gender components. A good example of a cultural component is in some societies, we love hearing apologies. So there's an entire chapter in my book on the rhetoric of apologies. If someone stands up and gives a meaningful apology, we think that is a good person with values, we like them. In other cultures, if you stand up and you apologize, that is a sign that you're a disgrace and a failure. So the rhetoric of an apology that will work very well for one audience won't work for another, in the same way that perhaps a more simplistic marketing campaign in one community might not work in another. So when you see a use of rhetoric like that, like the the want a job vote Trump sign, uh, I'm wondering, like, what do you what do you think about it? Like, do you think 
whoever wrote that did a good job because they're uh, they're appealing to a potential voter base's emotions, uh, right? Because like we can debunk the logic of want a job, vote Trump as as potentially unsound, which uh, you know by 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 employing logically unsound techniques, this kind of feeds into that negative reputation of rhetoric. So I mean I don't know if this is uncomfortable for you to talk about, but like I'm wondering in in your in your own work, do you find yourself relying on these, um, I don't know, let's just call them them tricks, these like, you know, these very falsifiable claims, things like absolutes or false dichotomies. Uh, do you find yourself having to write things that are objectively untrue, but serve some sort of persuasive purpose? Absolutely, all the time. And it's not just in the speeches I write, it's also in the conversations that I have. For example, I will use absolutes to emphasise something, for example. But I know that that absolute is logically false. I know that it's not true, but I use it for emphasis, to be hyperbolic. And odds are the person I'm talking to also knows that it's not true. And there's a risk that I'll be talking to someone who will think that it, this absolute is true, for example. You know, I'll say all speechwriters use rhetoric. It's probably true, but there might be one speechwriter out there who's never heard of rhetoric and has written some speeches and it's it's not it's not logically true and we all use logical fallacies absolute is an example uh, false dichotomy is another one sometimes a false dichotomy might be unethical but it will be like a white lie that actually gets people thinking down the route you want them to and sometimes getting your audience to think the way you want them to it's the ethically right thing to do and if you use an unethical way of getting them to do that is that right is that wrong if you start dabbling in the ethics you then can't say anything without being unethical because whenever we use sure. language to be persuasive, we're essentially manipulating our audience. Right. And, and I guess the, the, the nuance here is that manipulation, again, is, is this thing that has a, a negative connotation. But it, manipulation is not necessarily like inherently evil if you're trying to achieve a certain end. You know, man, manipulation just means, uh, uh, I, I know, perhaps you can define it better, but like just on the fly, like, you know, you're just you're just changing or shaping the thing that you're doing or saying to achieve some end. And the end is the important yeah. thing. That's what you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some people will say that, you know, manipulation is bad or persuading someone is bad. You know, if I'm going out and I'm persuading people that we need to put, you know, more funding into the local community for social mobility, I'll argue that's really good. And I'll go out to some people who maybe don't agree with that and I'll use an argument, I'll use certain words, I'll use certain rhetorical structures. And then they'll be like, yeah, no, actually I agree. I've theoretically then manipulated that person's thinking. I've persuaded them from thinking that community isn't important to community and social mobility is important. And I don't think that the manipulation itself is inherently evil. I could manipulate people for bad things, for example, and lots of speakers do that all the time, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally, but you know, without getting into a very deep conversation about ethics, truth, and what is good and bad, um, it's yeah, very that, hard that's to another make podcast. clear statements. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or five. Um, okay. So, 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 so let's dive into some of these uh, techniques. I think the, the first three that you kick off the book with are logos, uh, ethos, and pathos. So ethos, logos, and pathos are considered to be the three main branches of rhetoric. And there are lots of other rhetorical tropes and structures that fall within them. But to give you like a very quick introduction, logos is quite simply when you use logic in your speech. So you'll present your audience or whoever you're speaking to or writing to or whoever is looking at the words that you're using with a logical argument. And that logical argument could be something very, very basic. An example of my book is John is a parking warden. Uh, parking wardens are evil. 
Without having to say anything more, you can then conclude that John is evil or villainous. So that would be an example of logos. Then we have pathos. So pathos or pathos is when you're trying to elicit an emotional response through your words. So perhaps you want to make someone angry, someone sad, happy. Perhaps you want them to feel embarrassed about themselves or you want to shame them into taking action. That is pathos. So when someone stands up and says, oh, I want you to think about the effect this will have on the children, that is emotional manipulation and that is pathos. And then the final one is ethos, which is incredibly important. And that is how you define your voice. It's your credibility or who you are as a speaker. So perhaps in some occasions you will be speaking or writing and you want to come across as a world leading expert who's very powerful and knows everything. Or you might want to come across as a bumbling fool to avoid any responsibility. So what we do is we change the words that we use and the way that we use them to project an image which best suits our purpose. And that is our ethos. So logos, mm. pathos and ethos. Those are the three main branches of rhetoric. Some people also include kairos as like a like tiny fourth branch trying to catch up with the big three. Uh, and kairos refers to time. So it's the time in which a message is delivered. The idea that every message will have a key time in which it will be most effective. And why is time an important aspect of rhetoric? Because I think that if you're trying to convince someone of something, convincing them that now is the time to do it or talk about it is incredibly important. One of the things that I find really interesting is when I'm listening to a speech and someone will say, we're gathered here today, or I want you sat here today. And they keep reminding their audience that, you know, hey, audience, you're here. And by the way, audience, it's now today. Your audience know where they are and they know that the present time is today. So why do we say it in speech? And that's because we're emphasizing the timing of what we're going to say. And that adds to the momentousness of what we're going to say. But also, for example, in crisis communication, let's say that you're the mayor of a small town and there has been a you know, horrible terrorist attack on your town. The timing in which you give your response is incredibly important. You don't wait four days. You have to be on TV immediately afterwards. So the people learn there's been an attack and then they hear your speech or they hear that, that there's been an attack through your speech. So Kairos kind of has two levels there. I see. I see. Um, well, yeah, let, I want to dig into each of these a little bit more, or at least some of these a little bit more. Ethos is interesting to me because basically it's like an invocation of authority, right? Uh, is that, am I, am I on point there? So this can be used, you know, to bolster the individual, but also the inverse of this is to attack someone else, right? Like ethos is a two-way street in that sense. Yeah, definitely. So when you're attacking someone else's character or credibility, that's called argumentum ad hominem, which means against the person. Uh, so, for example, if someone stands up and makes an argument, I could stand up and say, well, you have famously been wrong in the past eight things that you've said. Therefore, you're probably wrong now and we're not going to listen to you. So I'm attacking their credibility by saying they've been wrong in the past. Or if someone stands up and says, oh, no, it would be wrong for you to do that. I'd be like, oh, well, you, you know, cheated on your partner and murdered seven people. How dare you lecture me in ethics? Even if what they're saying, <laughs> I just, you know, as an example of bad people off the top of my head, cheating murderers sure, sure. comes to... But what I'm saying to that person is you have no right to express an ethical opinion, even if their ethical opinion might be the right one in that one instance. So you're using something about their character to discredit their argument. So that's argumentum ad hominem. If you're trying to discredit the logic of their argument, that is argumentum ad rem. And ethos is not just about individuals. It can also be about organizations. So, for example, the ethos of a company, 
So one of the things that I find very interesting is when I'm working as a spokesperson, I will have my ethos as a spokesperson. How confident do I want to seem in this room? But also, what is the ethos of the organization that I'm representing in this room? Is my organization the most powerful organization here? Is my organization a small, insignificant one that was just lucky to be invited? And that will change the way that I speak. So it's not just my ethos. It's also the ethos of the organization I'm representing, but also the ethos of the audience members. So the ethos mm. is kind of like balanced out and there's this very complicated power play between the different relationships. That's, that's very interesting. Um, and now with, with Logos, you basically said this is when you, um, when you use logic in your speaking. So, so there's two branches to this, right? There's informal and formal logic. I don't know how deep you want to go into either of these, but maybe, maybe just like high level define each of them. I know you already give, gave one example, but define these and maybe give one example of each and how they work in practice. When, when, when I talk about formal logic, it's almost like the point where philosophy meets mathematics and you have all A is B, X is B, therefore, and, and you carry on and you end up with these syllogisms. Whereas informal logic is when someone makes an argument that's what we call logically unsound. So if you mapped it out in a formal sense, it doesn't make sense. However, when you use it in a speech, people don't realize it's wrong and they kind of just accept it. So, for example, statistics are almost always an example of logos, of logic. Mm. And statistics are also famously sometimes absolute bogus. I, I can't remember who said it, but there's a very good quote saying they use, that someone was criticizing someone else and they said they use statistics like a drunk man uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And it's true. Statistics mm. can just be used for support and someone can just carry on using the same statistic as if it's a fact presenting a logical argument, even though that statistic out of context sounds like it makes sense. But if you understand the context, it's redundant. But people don't understand the context, so we use it because it's effective. Right. And, and, and you know what I think is significant for us to bring up uh, and just clarify for listeners is that these three categories, or I, I guess four categories if we include Kairos, the, these categories can work together in a single sentence or a single statement or paragraph or, or whatever it is. It's not like uh, something can only be ethos or only pathos or, or, or whatever. It's sort of like in a, if we draw a comparison to like literary terms or techniques or something, like something can be a hyperbole and a metaphor and I don't know, uh, something else. So I, I don't know if you can come up with this off the top of your head, but do you have some example where logos, ethos, and pathos are working together in the same statement or the same speech or the same paragraph? I, I, this is like probably not the example you're looking for, but I'm thinking of that film where the guy says, oh, I'm the father of a murdered daughter, and he's giving this whole speech. What film is that? You know what I'm talking about. I don't, no. uh, but Google might. Uh, <laughs> Google I, I, I can look it up. Guy, yeah, if, if I started a speech and I said, I'm speaking to you as the father of a murdered daughter, what I'm doing is I'm using pathos because I'm using a very strong emotive experience of something that's happened to me that the audience can relate to, that get when them on side. I'm also asserting my ethos, but also depending on what I'm talking about, it could also be a logical argument suggesting that because of my ethos and because of who I am, I am justified in what I'm going to say. So for example, I, I would say that ethos is almost always a use of logos as well. So it's impossible to assert your credibility without making a logical argument that because you have these experience, you're therefore qualified. So if I walk into a basket weaving association and I say, oh, I think that the European basket weaving formula is much better to the American basket weaving formula, people go, who is this guy? If I go in, I say, oh, it's the 2000 and 
21 international basket weaving champion. I believe that. The European form of basket weaving is much better to the... By the way, I know nothing about basket weaving. I'm just making this up. But the point is, if I said that, people would be like, wow, he's an authority. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. And that's me using ethos in a way that makes a logical argument, which could be redundant. Uh, the example that I like to use, um, and you know, my mother's going to hate me for this, but I use my mother as an example of someone who uses this illogically all the time. I'm one of six kids. And when I was younger, she'd get into conversation with other parents about how to raise kids. And she'd say, oh, well, as a mother of six children. And whenever she said that, everyone would assume she knows what she's talking about because she's done this six times. Now, of course, there is the possibility that she could have six children and still be a terrible, terrible parent. Thankfully, that's not the case, but, but it could be the case. And therefore, that is a use of ethos, which is also logically fallacious and potentially also pathos. Okay, let's move on now. I want to talk a little bit about repetition because this is this is one of these techniques where if I were to just say the word repetition, I think you know most people would overlook it as something valuable because uh, you know repetition is amateurish or, or or monotonous. But there's actually a lot of different kinds of repetitions, each uh, each of which have their own hard to pronounce names, uh, <laughs> again, um, and each of which kind of serve a different purpose. So again, you don't have to be completely exhaustive here, but what are some examples of repetition? So my favorite example of a speech to use when looking at repetition is Kevin Rudd's apology to the indigenous peoples of Australia. So Kevin Rudd was the prime minister of Australia and he apologized for Australia's actions against the indigenous people, which, you know, if you look at it is basically genocide because they're taking children away from their home. They had this breeding program to try and get rid, of the, get rid of the black gene. They were denying people the right to use their own language. There were lots of horrible things going on. And he wanted to apologize. And in his apology, he said, to the mothers and the fathers, we say sorry. To the brothers and the sisters, we say sorry. For the breaking up of families and communities, we say sorry. What he's essentially done is just listed a bunch of family relations. So that, that that's you know, pathos, because when you say mothers and fathers, everyone thinks of their mother and father and they're more emotionally connected. But essentially, all he said is, to everyone who was affected by our genocide, we are sorry. Now, of course, had he said that, it would not have been as effective in the slightest. The fact that he made a point of repeating these different family relationships and using those like antithesis or contrast, so mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, families, communities, by structuring that in three parts, which is called a tricolon, by repeating, we are sorry, at the end of each sentence, which is a form of repetition called epistrophe, he really emphasized that he is sorry, and he understands he was affected by this. And therefore, his apology is much more effective than if he says, we're sorry to everyone. And another example of repetition that he used in that speech is he said, for the pain, suffering and hurt, we say sorry. Now, you don't have to be a genius to realize that pain, suffering and hurt literally mean the same thing. So why, mm -hmm. is he, why is he using this tricolon, so three pieces that mean the same thing? And he's doing that because he's signaling to his audience and he's saying, whatever you call this, however you see it, whatever language you use, I recognize it, it's valid and we're sorry. And by the way, using many words that mean the same thing is another form of rhetoric called abundantia. Just using something in abundance. So that's an incredibly powerful speech and an incredibly powerful apology. And the reason that it's powerful is because Kevin Rudd used intentional repetition in an effective way to elicit an emotional response from his audience. 
Right. And that, which, again, is very different than just repeating something because you don't know what to say or you're Absolutely. just trying to fill space. Um, I, I have to ask, Meaningful repetition. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do have to ask. So uh, with with the tricolon, which, again, is just a repetition of three or the rule of three, um, again, bringing it back to fifth grade English class for, for a lot of us, always told... Uh, use examples in three, you know, you can't, you can't use two. Uh, there's something about this rule of three. So it, it, is that like a classical rhetorical technique, like going back to, you know, Cicero and, and, and if so, like, like why, like what, what is the significance of using three or maybe there is none? I don't know. So it, it goes back further than Cicero. It goes back to the beginning of records of language, probably. So one of the things that I will emphasize is whilst the, the Greeks and the Romans came up with names for all of these techniques, the techniques were used before. You'll find them, for example, in lots of Jewish writing that predates the foundation of these rhetorical, or the identification of these rhetorical features. And yeah, the rule of three is something that's been around for a long time. So you know, Julius Caesar said, I came, I saw, I conquered. That's a tricolon. And by the way, you know, essentially he's saying, yeah, I destroyed everything. But if he said, yeah, I destroyed everything, we, we wouldn't be quoting it still today. The fact that I even know that that quote's existence, I came, I saw, I conquered, is because it's structured into the tricolon or the rule of three or whatever you want to call it. Now, it's possible that maybe there's just something innate in our psychology that responds well to things that are structured in three parts. Or maybe we've sure. just been socially conditioned through thousands of years of people using it. But even in like you know, religious writings, yeah, for example, in Christianity, people talk about the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this idea of things being structured into three is found so commonly in so many aspects of language and culture that it's it's perpetuatingly effective. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the answer I was expecting It's basically we don't know exactly where it comes from or why, but it it's been around and it's staying around. Chicken or egg? People still use it today all, all the time, and you'll find it in marketing, on tweets, anywhere, anywhere that you go. I was literally today looking at the Apple website at the iPhone 14 Pro, and the, I, I spotted something that was structured in a tricolon. I was like, look, Apple is still using it today. And obviously, a company like Apple would have invested a lot of money to figure out exactly what is the most effective way of wording this so that when people are on their website, they're more likely to buy this phone. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Any, anything else you want to say about repetition before we move on to something else? I just say it's incredibly effective when it's used in a meaningful way. I'll share my favorite use of repetition, and that's the chiasmus. So that's when, and it's a bit more complicated, but it's when repetition follows an A, B, B, A structure. And the example that everyone likes to use is when Kennedy said, um, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So the repetition goes country, you, you country and it kind of doesn't matter what you're saying if you can fit it into a chiasmus it will work really effectively and it just sounds eloquent and it gives off this perception that you're somehow wise and know what you're talking about even when you don't there was an example of a religious another example a religious preacher said sin keeps you away from the bible and the bible keeps you away from sin now neither of those statements are particularly profound but when you use that chiasmus structure of the ABBA all of a sudden to me at least it sounds a lot more profound than if you just use one of the two statements on their own. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from today's sponsor. This episode of Words for Granted is sponsored by BetterHelp. So I myself 
can be a workaholic, always focused on meeting deadlines, working on projects, failing to set boundaries. And truth is, most of the time that works for me. But when it doesn't, that's when the burnout sets in. And if you've ever experienced that sense of overwhelm that I'm talking about, then you know it really stinks. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. My partner actually just signed up for BetterHelp and it's her first time in therapy and her take is that it's really helping her to get in touch with her values and also to help her set more boundaries between her personal and professional lives, which is the thing I was just talking about that I could use a little help with. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ForGranted, F-O-R-G-R-A-N-T-E-D, to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash for granted. All right, back to the show. All right, so the the name of the book is How to Apologize for Killing a Cat. And there's an entire chapter, uh, which I think is called The Anatomy of an Apology. So let's say that you kill my dog because I have a dog and not a cat. If you kill okay. my dog, um, how might you go about making me feel better about that action and do it in a way that I actually believe you? Uh, by the way, the reason that I picked this title is because I knew it was going to be provocative. And I know that people say that you can never apologize for killing someone's beloved pet. And personally, I'm more of a dog person than a cat person. So obviously, I'm going to kill the cat. Um, there are some psychologists who came up with what they consider to be the six key components of a successful apology. And those are an expression of remorse over the conflict, an acceptance of responsibility for the harmful behavior, an admission of injustice or wrongdoing, an acknowledgement of harm and or victim suffering, a promise to do better in the future, and an offer to repair the damage done. So if I use the example of your dog and I gave you the very basic apology using those six components, I could be like, I'm sorry, it's my fault, I was wrong, I can see you're upset, it won't happen again, I'll get you a new dog. If I said that, you're not gonna forgive me in the slightest, but that theoretically does those six things. So what I, what I do in the book is I give another example where I use rhetoric and I use repetition, I use ethos, logos, and pathos to try and bolster that. So I could say to you, um, I know how much your children loved that cute little dog buster and how upset they're gonna be when they find out. I never want to get behind the wheel again. This is absolutely terrible. Please, please, please let me know if there's anything that I can do to help make the situation better. I can talk to your kids and explain if you like, it's the least that I can do. So what I've done is I basically, both of those examples are apologies. Both of them are apologizing for the same thing, but one of them just uses that repetition, ethos, logos, and pathos in a way that hopefully makes it more forgivable. I don't know, it depends how much you love your dog. Yeah, I'd probably still be pretty pissed, but that, <laughs> the, the second of those two options, uh... Yeah, you, you, you come off as more sympathetic. It's a little bit more proactive than passive. Absolutely. If you, can, if you can match the emotional response of the person you're talking to, you're much more likely to break through. And this is the case for any, any, any emotion. I remember I was on a course with a hostage negotiator, and he said that when you're in the middle of a hostage negotiation, if you know, there's someone who's there who's got, a, who's got you know, 
people hostage and they're shouting, screaming, and you go there and you're like, okay, calm down, it's all right. That's just going to push them further. He claimed that when you're in a situation of crisis with hostage negotiation, you have to meet that person on the same emotional level, connect with them, and then bring them down. So if you've done something which someone is really upset about and they're experiencing really strong emotions, you have to prove that you can see, understand, and relate to those emotions, and then your apology is more likely to be meaningful. Whereas if you apologize in a way that you're kind of suggesting, oh yeah, I'm sorry if you're upset, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you're upset if because you feel like I killed your dog. Like it doesn't sound effective. The example of like, uh, like you know, the lamest apology in, in recent history, and I'm sorry that it's a, it's a British example, but you know, during COVID, we had a huge shortage of masks and personal protective equipment. And our Home Secretary at the time said, I'm sorry if you feel there have been failings in the way the government has handled this. And that's a way of saying that there haven't been government failings, but you feel there have been government failings. And I'm acknowledging your pathetic little response, but not accepting any responsibility. Yeah, you know, this this gets me thinking that like the idea of matching or meeting your audience where they are. Uh, I, I don't think this just applies to apologies, but, you know, thinking of this at the level of like international political conflicts, if your audience wants blood, you give them blood, right? You have to know what your audience are feeling in order to be able to tap into their emotions, to be able to basically manipulate their thinking. If you don't know what your audience is thinking, you're not going to be able to successfully, or you're less likely to be able to successfully persuade them, I should say. And we use Donald Trump as an example and the want a job vote Trump. And that that's something that's incredibly emotive. But even like his slogan for election and that he's throughout, you know, make America great again is something that's incredibly powerful. Because if you think about it, make America great again, that sentence on its own is a logical argument. Because make America great again has an implied premise that America used to be great and that it's no longer great. So make America great again is an entire logical argument. But as well as that, it's also an imperative that's literally telling you what to do. But it's also quite an emotional argument as well, because for lots of people who want to feel patriotic about their country and want to feel their country is great, being told that it's no longer great is something that, will, that people will find quite upsetting. And these slogans are so rhetorically charged. And it's the same thing here in the UK when we had our Brexit campaign, the campaign for leaving the European Union had take back control. And essentially that's exactly the same thing. You used to have control, you no longer have control, therefore you have to take back control. And it's also an imperative and it's also emotive. And those work because they're kind of preempting or predicting how the audience is feeling and they're acknowledging that in the form of an imperative. And I think that's yeah. incredibly powerful. Yeah, what I was gonna say is uh, make America great again might be that example that we were looking for in the beginning of this conversation, like something that combines logos, ethos and pathos. Like if, oh, yeah. if you yeah. know, if, if as part of that premise is that Donald Trump is the president that will make America great again, that is, you know, that invocation of his own uh, yeah. authority there to deliver uh, on that uh, promise. Absolutely. And in some cases, you'll find speeches where the, the the speaker has to acknowledge a very difficult situation and still somehow motivate them. And, you know, uh, I'm using this example purely for the sake of like, you know, academic academic analysis. But if you look at like the Nazi speeches, they do that a lot. The Nazis gave speeches to a very dejected audience who knew they were losing the war and they had to somehow motivate them. And in one of his one of the most famous speeches of Nazi history was Goebbels' total war speech, which was just after Germany 
had lost the Battle of Stalingrad to Russia, and morale in Germany was incredibly weak. And he had to somehow acknowledge that morale was weak, but then somehow build them back up. And his argument is, oh, the reason that Russia won is because we were fighting according to this code of honor and they went all out. So now it's time for Germany to show them total war. And the entire speech was about total war and how we need to embrace total war. And his audience of 15,000 people was so riled up and hyper by the end of this that he figured he finished with people rise up and let the storm break loose. And after the speech, he was boasting to his friend, saying, the audience were eating out of my hand. If I told them to go and jump off the roof of the building, they would have done it. So he was aware that he tapped in to their anger, to their suffering, to their anxiety. And he then weaponized that to total war, which was the purpose of his speech. And I think this is an example yeah. where you see the, the dark side of rhetoric and how it can be used in an incredibly dangerous way. And everything about that speech was very carefully thought through, including who was in the audience. 15,000 mm. people, but each and every one of them was selected because they knew that they would be the kind of audience who would react well to that speech. And that speech was so successful and it was videoed. You couldn't go into a cinema in Germany. Anything you saw in the cinema, you'd have to watch a five-minute clip from the speech before the show was on. It was everywhere. It was printed in full in the newspaper twice. It was constantly regurgitated. And every, no one in Germany could have avoided hearing that speech. And it very much tapped into the audience's emotions and then turned them round in a really dangerous way. Yeah, that's powerful. Well, I think the last thing that I want to ask you before we wrap up here is, um, how often do you think public speakers, you know, let, let's just stick with politicians. I think that's a, that's a good example of a public speaker. Um, you know, when employing these rhetorical techniques. And I, I think I'm really thinking of like false dichotomies, logical fallacies. Um, how often do you think that when they're using these objectively falsifiable techniques that they actually believe themselves, if, if, if that makes sense? Like you have some example in the book, um, the, the head of the NRA, uh, he's basically responding to uh, some like gun control groups statement and he says something like, they hate the NRA, they hate freedom. He just goes through this list of things that gun control supporters hate, which, of course, that response ignores this entire middle ground, this entire gray area between gun control and hating freedom. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, as the deliverer of that speech, just as an example, like, do you think, do you think they believe themselves and just like the broader extrapolation from this is like when politicians respond in these kinds of ways, do they, do they take themselves seriously in their, in, in their statements? Yeah. I think, I think they do. I think, you know, Wayne Yapier, who is head of the National Rifle Association basically said, you're either with us or you hate everything that America stands for is what he said. And I think for lots of people who are in the middle ground, they will then say, well, I, I don't want to be against everything America stands for, so I'm probably on his side then. And what you do is you're basically denying that middle ground legitimacy in a way that forces the people of middle ground to your side or the other side, and it creates this sort of like polarization. And that's why false dichotomy is so powerful as a rhetorical feature. And I think that for lots of people using things like false dichotomy, they will believe that that is true in that moment because people don't scrutinize the logic of what they say. I'm sure that if I re-listened to the things that I've said in this conversation with you now in this podcast, I would find things that I would disagree with 
almost certainly. Sure. If I scrutinize them with a certain logical rigor. But we don't do that when we're speaking. And also when we're speech writing and thinking, we imagine ourselves speaking in a certain way. We can imagine how we're going to wave our hands, how the audience are going to react. We're not thinking about logical scrutiny. We think what's going to be effective. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, I'm going to intentionally use a false dichotomy in this bit because of X, Y, Z. And sometimes it's a bit subliminal. And they kind of just do it because it feels like the right thing to do. Because again, it's socially conditioned within us to speak in a certain way. But I think that in that moment, we do we do believe it. And one of the things that I find interesting is a, as a speechwriter, I write about lots of different things, some things that I actively just don't care about. But when I'm writing them, I have to have like some sort of emotional response. I have to pretend that I am in the shoes of the speaker, of the person they're speaking to, and I have to ask myself, what are the most effective words to deliver this message? Not whether they're logically true, not whether they're ethical, right. what are the most effective words to deliver this message? And then I sort of like weigh out the rest of it. Yeah, you have a really good example of this in the book, which is when Donald Trump defends Melania Trump's plagiarism of a Michelle Obama speech. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the bit with Melania, uh, she basically word for word plagiarized one of Michelle Obama's speeches. Now, of course, Melania did not plagiarize Michelle Obama's speeches. Melania's speechwriters plagiarized Michelle Obama's speeches and gave her a speech to read out. And that's the thing that we have to remember here. And then in Donald Trump's response... He's also had a speechwriter write it for him, probably. So he's not just waffling. And the the way that he dealt with that example is he said, oh, the media are so anti-me. They're so horrible to me, but they're also horrible to my wife and my wife doesn't deserve it. Here's an example for you. Michelle Obama stands up and gives a speech and the media think it's great. My poor wife, Melania, stands up and gives exactly the same speech and they give her hell. So what he was doing in a humorous way, he was acknowledging that there was basically a bit of a mess up and that her speech was exactly the same, but he used that as a joke. But underpinning that joke was his argument that the media don't treat him fairly. Yeah, it's pretty brilliant. I think that was a very clever way of acknowledging the big whoopsie in the room in a way that was humorous, lighthearted, exonerated his wife, but highlighted what he considers or what he claims is a very serious problem, which is the media being biased. And then from what I remember, after he said that, He said, come on, Melania, stand up. Let's give her a round of applause. She's a wonderful person. She didn't deserve that. So then he's showing Melania as being a victim of this whole, like, you know, media triade. And the people in the room would have probably thought, oh, no, that's really horrible. Poor Melania. And yeah, people make mistakes. It happens. So it was very very clever. But of course, again, he'll have entire teams who are dedicated to writing these jokes for him, writing these speeches for him. And then he'll have probably a chief speechwriter who will be picking out the ones that best, giving it to him. Whether he uses it or not is down to Uh, him. Sometimes speakers won't use the words that their speechwriters have created. I knew one guy who during that time, his job was simply to write Hillary Clinton's jokes. So he was on the Hillary campaign and he was basically just contributing jokes that she could then use in her speeches. I don't think this was one of his, but one of the things is, you know, Donald Trump accused her of using performance enhancing drugs. And she said, yeah, like preparation. So that was really funny because she was saying, I've prepared, you haven't prepared. And also it's kind of like ad hominem against him because it's attacking his credibility, which suggests that he's not going to be a good president and she would be. Right. I mean, this is totally fascinating. I'm glad that we got this bit. Like that's that's it's something that we lay people forget that like basically any time a politician makes some public appearance, likely they have a team doing everything for them, like in terms of what they're saying. Uh yeah, that's just good for good for us to remember. Or they've also um, said it many, many times. So it's not authentic. It's not genuine. It's not off the cuff. 
I remember yeah. I was on a campaign trail once and I heard the same politician make the same joke about 30 times. And each time it was kind of like complimenting the audience in a way. And the audience felt that it was personalized to them, but obviously it wasn't. It was just the same thing on repeat again and again and again. A good, a good example of that is, you know, if you look at Martin Luther King's speeches, they were all, he'd, he'd done it so many times that I have a dream speech before the famous one that was recorded. And apparently mm. before he stood up and spoke there, people said to him, whatever you do, don't do the I have a dream speech. The people are sick and tired of hearing it. So he went in and he started giving this speech about a metaphor about the people, about the um, black people of America taking a check and that check bouncing back, saying insufficient funds. And it was this whole metaphor of this check bouncing back for rights. And it's a good speech. It was very poetic. But if you watch the video, you can see the moment he puts it down and then goes into the I have a dream. Because apparently whilst he was speaking, someone behind him was shouting, do the I have a dream speech, Martin, do the I have a dream. So he just puts the paper down. He looks up and then he goes into the I have a dream speech. And then all of a sudden it becomes really impressive because this is wow. a speech that I, he's done multiple crazy. times before. I had multiple times. I actually just got I just got goosebumps. That, that's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. And to think he almost didn't say it. Another yeah. example, by the way, of someone saying something really famous and being told not to say it is when Reagan was in Berlin, his advisor said to him, whatever you do, don't mention the wall. Don't mention the wall. And of course, one of the most famous things that he said is, Mr. Gorbachev, if you care about freedom, if you care about this, Mr. Gorbachev, come here, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Yeah. And that was one of the most powerful things that Reagan um, probably ever, ever said. And right beforehand, in the car, they said to him, whatever you do, don't mention the war. As, as we wrap up, are there any last things that you want to squeeze here into the conversation? And um, if not, tell listeners where they can find out more about you, buy your book, and so on. I think the one thing that I would love for people to take away from this is that rhetoric, despite its reputation as being evil, despite its seeming slightly academic and political is it's really not it's actually something that's really exciting and if you look at it in the right way also really fun and i think that we all need to learn more about it uh, i think it's our duty you know as citizens within a democracy to be aware of how messages are being used to persuade us we need to be able yeah. to scrutinize arguments and in order to do that we need to know what techniques are being used against us i gave i gave a tedx talk about rhetoric and i called it defense against the dark arts obviously playing on the Harry Potter uh, lesson, but also saying, yeah, maybe rhetoric is this dark art and maybe we need to start learning about it so that it won't be as effective so that people won't start falling to every single poorly constructed argument that they're presented with simply because we don't know it's an argument. Um, and yeah, I would absolutely love it if your listeners would read my book, uh, How to Apologize for Killing a Cat, which tells you all about how rhetoric works, what it is, where you're likely to find it. And feel free to write to me. I'm on LinkedIn. I've got a website. I think I'm the only guy dozer who comes up on Google. So easy. Okay, well, fantastic. Guy, thank you so much for having this chat with me today. Thank you so much.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.